What do you want? It's a simple question. What do you want? And depending on how I say it, it conveys a number of different meanings. I could say, what do you want? It means something totally different than, what do you want? See, I would venture a guess that each and every one of you who is here today, myself included, we're always seeking something, aren't we? We always want something. Depending on the circumstances, early in the morning, I might want a hot cup of coffee and some peace and quiet that I could connect with God at the beginning of my day. Other times, when I'm really tired, I just want to go to sleep. If you've ever been thirsty, like really thirsty, where you've been without water for a long time, there's nothing you want more in that moment than water, than a cold drink of water. Other times, when I've been away from my family for several days and I come home, I can't wait to see them, to reconnect with them. I want that feeling of being around people that I love, of being around my family. Sometimes I'm feeling a little insecure and I just want some affirmation. I just want someone to notice something that I've done and to recognize it. Other times I want that deep sense of fulfillment that comes at the end of a day when you feel like you've been almost completely wrung out for God and yet you feel like you were doing the exact right thing the entire time. We have different things that we want in different circumstances and different settings. And uh, maybe you took freshman psychology or a class in uh, high school where you heard about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Anybody ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Simple concept. I see a lot of hands going up. A simple concept that says there are certain hierarchy of needs. And so there's like physiological needs that it really doesn't matter if you don't have food and water and shelter you're not too concerned about other things. Once you get those needs met, then you move up the line to feeling safe. So you want shelter and surroundings that are safe. You want the feeling of security. As you move up, then we move into emotional needs and psychological needs. And at the very top of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs are what he called self-actualization. Self-actualization, where, where we really step into and are able to pursue what we feel is our calling in life or, or a deeper sense of being that, that we are doing what we were created to do. Interestingly enough, in the last decade or so, a new level has been added to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We've got another slide. Uh, Wi-Fi has now um, become, the, there's an entire generation that is growing up and they're not worried about food or water or sleep or anything else if they don't have a good Wi-Fi signal and a full battery, right? So uh, that's just a little bit of fun. But we do have these needs, and we're created with these needs. In fact, Scripture would tell us that we were made to crave God, that inside each and every one of us, some theologians have called it the God-shaped hole, that there is a God-shaped hole that nothing else really fits. And so sometimes we reach and we grab for things like money and power and success, and we try to cram those into the God-shaped hole, but nothing fits in the God-shaped hole except for God. And we have this, this craving for God. And our enemy tries to redirect it away from God, away from his presence, away from our relationship with him, tries to redirect our cravings to the various appetites of our flesh or our sinful nature. 
But we were made to be in relationship with God. And before the fall, there was unbroken relationship with God. And the humans that he had created, Adam and Eve, walked with God in the cool of the day. There was unbroken fellowship prior to the fall. And Jesus came to restore that which was broken. So as we begin a new sermon series, as we begin our time together today, I have three questions for you. The first is what do you want? What are you seeking? What are you seeking right now in this moment? What are you seeking today? What do you want today to accomplish? What are you seeking in this season of life? What do you want right now? What are you after? What are you pursuing? The second question is where are you seeking it? Where are you seeking it? Where does what you're seeking fall on that hierarchy of needs? And where are you seeking the things that you're seeking? And the final question is that Dr. Phil question, right? How's that working out for you? How's that working out for you? You see, there's an invitation throughout Scripture. And one of the places that we hear it most clearly is in Psalm 66, where the psalmist writes to the people, Come and see what God has done, how awesome his works in man's behalf. There's an invitation There's an invitation by God throughout the pages of the Old Testament. There's an invitation that we're going to be considering over the next six weeks to come and to see, to come and see what God has done. How awesome his works in man's behalf. He continues, come and listen, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. So as we come and we see, then we go and invite. We come and we see, then we go and be. And that's our roadmap for the next quarter. We're going to come and see, come and see Jesus, come and see how he interacts with people, come and see what he has for us. And then in the following series, we're going to talk about going and being. Come and see Go and be. This was the plan from the beginning that we would come and we would interact with God and we would encounter God and we would experience God and we would come and see so that we could go and be. It is attractional and it is missional. It is come and see, go and be. Come, go, come, go. This cycle throughout Scripture. And so after Jesus comes and invites, then he sends Paul, he sends the apostles, he sends the first believers to go and to be the good news. And we have that opportunity as well as we continue. So that's a little bit of an overview of where we're going in the next series and the series to come. And we're going to start in the Come and See series in the Gospel of John. Because the Gospel of John is unique from the other three Gospels. That It is much more narrative-based. It has fewer stories, but they're longer and richer. It it doesn't have the same sequential uh, arrangement as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in that, he explores the theme of light and darkness. In the Gospel of John, he begins with this this sort of prelude or or, uh, introduction to the Gospel of John where it talks about the light coming into the world. And the darkness not being able to overcome that light. And throughout the Gospel of John, there is a theme of light and dark. And Jesus talks about being the light of the world. And over and over in the Gospel of John, there is this invitation 
to come and see. There are examples of people who come and who see, who come to the light, to Jesus, the light of the world, and see for the first time. And so we're going to be considering that as well. Each week we'll have a longer narrative section. So often, and Pastor Zach, you made such a good point last week, how we kind of pluck a scripture or two or a verse or two out of the Bible and we kind of focus on that and we might miss other chunks. And so while there's specific verses that we'll look at each week, there are longer narrative sections that I'm going to read to you, probably longer than you've experienced in church, maybe in some time, where we read the story and let that be the setup for the lesson. And then we'll focus on a few key elements of that and seek to apply those to our lives that we might be transformed into the image of God. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, I would invite you over the next few weeks to be reading through the Gospel of John, to maybe take a chapter a day and really slowly walk through it and really study it, get a study Bible or go online and get some resources that will enable you to really seek to understand it below the surface level. But we were going to begin by reading this narrative section in John chapter 1. If you've got one of the pew Bibles in, in the seat backs or in the seat uh, bases, that's page 1646. I'm going to read verses 19 through 51. So again, longer narrative chunk, and then we will focus in on several specific parts of that. You're welcome to follow along with me or to, uh, to just sit back and listen. Now this was John's testimony When the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Finally, they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but one among you is standing who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now the next day... John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. 
So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard, that John, who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. Then he added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is God's word. And I want you to see a couple of things. Perhaps you caught them when I, when I said them. If you have a red letter version of your Bible, you'll notice that the first red letters that you see in the Gospel of John are that question from Jesus, what do you want? In verse 38, it's his first words in the Gospel of John. It's a question that he asks because somebody is following him and he wants to know, what do you want? And you might remember when we started off the series, Heavenly Minded and Earthly Good, the first week of that series, we talked about seeking or setting our hearts or setting our minds on the things of heaven. You remember that? If you were here, you might remember that we focused on a Greek word, zetiete. It's the same word that Jesus uses here. He asks them the question, what are you seeking? What are you pursuing? What are you after? What do you want? And if you remember from that first week, it means to search, to seek, to search for, to desire, to demand, to require. He's like, why are you following me? And you have to laugh at their response, right? Uh, where are you staying? Do you think that's really what they wanted to know? Or do you think that they experienced the Son of the living God on whom the Spirit of God was resting. When he asked them this question, they were awestruck. They were dumbfounded. I don't think that's what they wanted to know. I don't think it is because he didn't answer their question, did he? He didn't tell them where he was staying. He invited them to come and see. Furthermore, if you read down to verse 41, they didn't return and tell other people they found where Jesus was staying, they went and told people that they had found the Messiah. What they wanted was the Messiah. What they were seeking was the Christ, the promised one, the one that was going to come from God and and set his people free, set the captives free. What they were seeking was Jesus. Not where he was staying, not information about him. And It's interesting that he responds to them. He could have said where he was saying. 
But instead, he answers with an invitation. He doesn't overpromise, but he certainly overdelivers. He doesn't overpromise because he knows that promises set expectations. Invitations create expectancy. And so he invites them to come with them, to come and experience it, to come and to see, knowing that when they come, they will, in fact, see. It's an invitation that he makes to us. And I have to learn this because so often I want to get into the debate. I want to oversell. I want to overpromise. I want to, I want to dazzle and wow. I'm kind of a born salesman. Before I was in ministry, I was selling insurance. And I, I, was, I knew my product inside and out so that I could convince you that you needed it. And I could promise you certain things, make promises. That's basically what I was selling when I sold insurance. I was selling promises. But Jesus doesn't oversell here. And I had to learn this when I came to Linwood. I, I mean, for crying out loud, my first sermon was about surrendering preferences in order to accomplish God's purposes in our lives, in order to take what the wind gives us, in order to accept his will for our lives instead of shaking our fist at the wind. And we have to continually be reminded that Jesus invites us to come and to see. And I love how this story continues. We see the first disciples picking this up as well. We see Philip in verse 46. He doesn't argue with Nathaniel, does he? Can anything good come from Nazareth? He doesn't argue. He doesn't engage. He doesn't try to oversell. He doesn't move into salesman mode. He simply repeats the invitation. Come and see. Because he has a confidence that if Nathaniel will come... He will see. And what happens at the end of the chapter that we read? Nathaniel comes and he sees. He experiences Jesus. And Jesus says, Ah, you believe because I told you something you didn't think I knew, basically. You're going to see a lot more impressive things than that. We're just getting started. And that's one of the beautiful things about Jesus, that when you come and see, and you come every day, and you see, and you come and you see, and you come and you see, you find that the best is always yet to come. The best is always yet to come. That as we follow him through difficulties, through trials, through, through circumstances that we never would have asked for, we gain an awareness of his presence in our lives. We gain an awareness of the promises that he has made for us. We gain an appreciation and a hunger for the hope that does not disappoint because it's the hope that we have in Jesus. And so Jesus and then Philip after him, they get to the question behind the question. They get to the invitation. And so our bottom line today is that we don't just need to know more about Jesus. We don't just need to know a few more facts. Where are you staying? Is anything good come from Nazareth? We don't just need to have a question or two answered. We need more Jesus. We don't just need to know a few more things about him. We need more of him in our lives. We need to saturate ourselves in him. And the people that we are sent to, the people that we are going to and going and being with, and inviting them to come and see. They don't need a debate. They don't need an argument. They need that invitation to come and to see, to come and to see. I was reminded this morning of one of the first messages I preached as I was 
uh, here as your pastor in the Journey to the Cross series, and we talked about the great banquet, and we had a big banquet set up here. And I was reminded by somebody who was probably at that sermon about how empty seats in spirit-filled churches grieve the heart of God. They break God's heart because he has somebody that he wants in that seat, and it's probably somebody you know. And I often say this, that somebody you know is hoping that somebody they know will invite them to church. They may not know it yet, but they're aching for something. They're longing for something. They want community. They want connection. They know that they have spiritual needs. They know. They've sensed. They've felt around the fringes of the God-sized hole in them. And they know that they are in need of salvation. They are in need of fellowship. They are in need of discipleship. They are in need of responding to God, to his love in worship. And so it's up to you, it's up to us together to invite. Did you know that Linwood could double next week if every single one of you brought somebody to church with you? Not take no for an answer? Walk up and down your block until you find somebody who will accept the invitation to come and see. Just come and see. Make that invitation. Because Jesus knew that he was the answer to the question, And he prophesied that we will see even greater things. That whatever you have experienced, there is a promise from Jesus that you will see even greater things. If not in this life, certainly in the next. That you will come to see him in all of his glory and spend eternity worshiping him in unbroken fellowship with all the believers. That's what I'm banking on. That's what I'm counting on. That's what I'm after. And so come and see becomes an invitation to a different kind of life. It's an invitation worth accepting. It's a, it's a life worth living. To wake up every morning and say, Jesus, what do you have for me today? How can I grow in my relationship with you today? What does your word have to say to me today? How can I be used by you? How can somebody come to see because of my life? And we lean into him and we follow him and we accept the invitation to the kingdom-centered life, to the life in his kingdom. And sometimes we think about kingdom and we think about a king on a throne and we think about subjects and we think about, about order and authority and all of those things. And that's how we maybe were trained to think of kingdom. But when Jesus talks about his kingdom, he's talking about anywhere that his will is done. That anywhere where his will is done, the prayer that he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where's the kingdom of God? It's where his will is done. You want the kingdom of God in your life? Then get busy doing his will in your life, in your circumstances, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your home. Wherever you are is a place for you to bring the kingdom of God into that place by doing the will of God in that place. Maybe you've heard the phrase upside-down kingdom. Has anybody said that? Talking about the kingdom of God, that it's an upside-down kingdom. Well, I I really get irritated when I hear that because it's an upside-down world, right? The kingdom of God is right-side-up. The kingdom of God has it all right. The kingdom of God has it figured out. Our world has put things upside-down. And Jesus said something really, really interesting in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He says, Seek ye first... The kingdom of God and its righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. You know what he did right there? He inverted Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Remember when we talked about that like 20 minutes ago? 
He's asking questions in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, why do you worry about what you eat or what you're going to wear or where you're going to go or where you're going to have shelter, where you're going to live? Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these other things are going to be added unto you. It's like he inverted Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So you start with the kingdom of God. You seek that first. Through that lens, you begin to self-actualize, to experience God's will in your life, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, which Pastor Zach taught us about last week. From there, you move on up the line, and, and by the time you get to what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink, it's become secondary to the purpose that God has for your life. And you seek that first because you have come and seen that he is good, and you can't wait to tell people about it. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to open-handed living. To open our hands before God and pray a simple prayer that says, God, take anything from my life that you need to take and give me what I most need to have. Not clenched fists saying, I have to have this. This is mine. Or getting territorial or saying, no, don't take that. Don't touch that. This is mine. I worked hard for that. This is mine. This is mine. This is mine. Almost like a toddler when somebody comes over to play in their room and they they kind of push all their special toys over into the corner and they say, well, you can play with that broken puzzles and the, the busted game and the thing that's missing a few pieces, but this stuff, this stuff is mine. We can't approach God that way. We approach God open-handedly and wholeheartedly, and we say, take what needs to go, give me what I need to have. And we keep coming back, and we keep coming back, and we keep coming back, and we receive his peace, and we release what needs to go, and we embrace what we most need. And so, to kind of illustrate this idea, you might be wondering, what's with the pickles, Mark? Right? Pastor Mark, what are you doing with the pickles? Well... How many of you know how to make a pickle? Anybody? A few hands go up. I had to research it because I wasn't 100% sure. Uh, but I heard about this illustration, and it was in a book that I was reading by a guy named James Brian Smith. And he was talking about you know, really becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, kind of like making a pickle. I thought, okay, tell me more. Well, w- what, what this has to do with is if you know how to make pickles, you know that you take pickling salt, right? So we got some pickling salt. And it's not pouring out very fast because the flap got bent in on itself. There we go. Now we got some pickling salt. And then we take some vinegar, right? You take vinegar. Now, how many of you, raise your hand if you're a dill pickle person. Okay, raise your hand if you're a sweet pickle person, handful. Some of you are undecided. You're like, well, what's it going on? What am I having it with, a hamburger or a hot dog? Because I like dill on hamburgers and I like sweet on hot dogs, right? So you take this and you you mix it all up, right? And then you take a pickling cucumber, which is different than a regular cucumber. It's smaller. It has smaller seeds or fewer seeds. And they make really little tiny ones or really big ones like this. You stir that all up, right? And you put some spices. If you want dill pickles, you put dill in. You want... uh, you want sweet pickles, you put some sugar in, you put coriander, you put all those different things. I didn't want to get carried away, but I did want to uh, kind of give you an example here of how this all works. So you take your pickle or your cucumber and you put it in there and then you take it out. Do I have a pickle? No. I got a baptized cucumber, don't I? <laughs> this is not a pickle. This over here 
is a pickle, isn't it? I'm going to leave that in there for a minute, see if it becomes a pickle in the next five or ten minutes, right? You see any differences? I tried to get some that were about the same size, but I should have dug a big one out. You see any differences between the two? Are they different in color? Yeah? Maybe it's just on the outside. What if we open one up? These are cheap pickles. They're not good. They're not crunchy and crisp. Does that look different on the inside than you think this cucumber is going to look? Yeah, it looks a lot different, doesn't it? There must be something more to making a pickle than just putting it in the ingredients. Right? What does it need? It needs some time, doesn't it? What else does it need? Heat, pressure, and staying in the ingredients. Now, how many of you remember middle school science when you got to do some experiments? I see one hand going up. He's young. He was just there a few years ago. What do they call it when you put salt in vinegar or water? What do they call it whenever you dissolve something into a liquid, a brine, or a solution? Solution would be the general term. Don't you love that? That this in here is the solution. This in here is Jesus. You're the cucumber. You want to become a pickle, you're going to have to spend some time in the solution. You're going to have to spend some time where there's a little bit of heat, a little bit of pressure. Things might get uncomfortable, but the more time you spend in the solution, this really cool chemistry thing happens. And I'm not a chemistry teacher. I'm a pastor. But I understand that the things that are in the pickle that make the pickle, I'm sorry, the things that are in the cucumber, that make the cucumber break down and decompose actually go out of the cucumber and the solution goes into the cucumber. And that is what makes it a pickle. The bad things come out. The things that are corruptible, the things that will decompose, the things that will rot and get nasty go out the longer we spend in the solution. And the things that we need in order to remain, in order to keep from rotting and decomposing and breaking down, come in and they take up residence in us. And that's why the inside of the pickle looks different. You're changed from the inside out. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more time you spend in his word, the more time you spend in fellowship with other believers, the more time you spend worshiping, the more time you spend studying, the more time you spend serving. And that's like warp speed. When you start serving other people, when you start going out and being Christ to other people, more of him gets in you and you become transformed and you're changed and you're different as a result of it. Seek first every single day. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It is not a transaction. It is transformational. Last week, the third point was that worship is transformational. Worship, when we come to God and we worship him, and we worship him with our whole lives, way beyond the music, way beyond the song selection, way beyond Life 96.5, which I love and we listen to all the time. But when we worship him with our workplace, 
attitude, when we worship him with our family and our friends, when we worship him in the way that we serve, in the way that we go, in the way that we give, in the way that we contribute, in the way that we say, God, it's all yours. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and everyone in it, we say, it's all yours. We say, you're worthy. And we worship him with our entire lives. Then, We are transformed. We don't just need to know more about Jesus. We don't just need to know how to make a pickle. We need more Jesus. We need Jesus coming into us and the parts of us that don't belong are chased out as we spend time in him and in his word. Would you pray with me today? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity We thank you for the invitation that you make to each and every one of us to encounter you each and every day. To open our hands before you and say, God, it's all yours. Take what needs to go. Give me what I need to have. Here's my hand. Lead me where you want me to be. Lord, I pray for us as a church. I pray for us as the people of God that we would accept the invitation and that we would extend the invitation. That we would come and see and then we would go and be. Be your people. Be your light in a dark world. Be a reflection of you to those who need to see that there is a God who loves them and who is pursuing them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.